The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. From Reuters Breaking Views, I'm Jennifer Saba. And I'm Anthony Curry. And you're listening to The Views Room. For the next two editions, we are going to feature what we think is in store for 2019. Our colleagues around the world are helping us out, plucking relevant themes from our annual predictions book, High Anxiety. First up, we turn to London to hear Liam Proud and Ed Cropley talk us through Africa's success in trade. Then it's on to Asia, where Katrina Hamlin and Alec McFarlane will talk about Chinese startups. And then finally, we will come back to New York to discuss the race for the car of the future. So Ed, everyone's talking about deglobalization at the moment and how trade walls are going up between countries. But you've been writing about a pretty interesting situation in East Africa, where the reverse seems to be happening with Ethiopia and Rwanda. Um, Could you just explain what's happening there and why it's different to the way things have been done for the last however many decades? Yeah, as you say, what's so interesting about this is that you don't often get examples of the right way to do it coming out of Africa. Um, right. It's a continent of you know 1.2 billion people. You've got 54 countries, so it's very, very um, balkanized and chopped up into little, lots of little bits. And across the continent, there have been various attempts to form regional trade blocks and to, to bring down those barriers to to commercial integration. And the only area that's really the only part of Africa that's really made any progress along these lines is East Africa, right. the East African Community. So they have a common market in goods, um, goods, labor, capital, and services that's been in place for several years now. They even have dreams of a, a currency union by 2023. Um, and and yeah, at the moment, you've got about 120, 130 million people in this common market. Um, but the major political moves that happened in 2018 were the emergence from sort of two and a half, three decades of, of very inward-looking socialist central planning in Ethiopia. Ethiopia is, is a country that's growing at 10% a year economically. Um, you've got 100 million people. Um, and and the, the new prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, is making all the right noises about increasing um, foreign investment access to his economy and also increasing the amount of trade um, that Ethiopia exports. So who, who would they be most be trading with in this situation? I mean, how does this slot in with the wider region? Um, well, Ethiopia at the moment, um, is a, it's got a relatively small manufacturing sector. Um, but has a high demand for foreign exchange and so is desperately trying to increase its exports to the world and it's trying to position itself as a, as, as a viable alternative, say, to, to the Chinese manufacturing story. Um, it's got very, very cheap um, supplies of electricity, very, very cheap supplies of labour. Um, it's politically stable at the moment, we hope, under Abiy Ahmed. And so it says it can be a, a cheap source of low-end manufacturing. Um, shoes, bicycles, motorbikes, what have you. Um, and that's being exported to Europe. They, they also export a lot of um, cut flowers and, and tea and, and basic raw soft commodities to, to Europe. Um, but the Ethiopia, the, the investment story, if, if you have Ethiopia as part of this common market, that's 250 million people right. in East Africa um, with no trade barriers between them, improved infrastructure, roads and railways, and so not only does Ethiopia become a manufa- source of manufactured goods for the rest of the world, it also becomes the source, the, the, the manufacturing engine of East Africa um, at the drop of a hat right on its doorstep. So the overall investment logic for building manufacturing centers and factories in Addis Ababa and around Addis Ababa, that then suddenly becomes uh, an order of magnitude higher. 
So you mentioned infrastructure, and of course the kind of backstory here is that a lot of the um, basic infrastructure that's going to help power this economic growth that we're hoping to see has been um, done by big Chinese companies. And there's this sort of, I think you've referred to it in a piece as a kind of another scramble for Africa almost, this battle for influence between America and Chinese interests over um, developing economies in Africa. Could you, could you explain how that's kind of heating up recently? I think there were some comments by... Um, by, by, by John Bolton. By John Bolton, yeah. Right, yeah. I, and this is something, you know, the, the Trump administration has, in the last two or three months, really woken up to the fact that America's influence um, and footprint in Africa is under threat. And uh, they believe it's under threat. Um, I think a more realistic assessment is that, that China's footprint is now all over Africa. Right. And America is desperate to try and keep a, a small toehold in the game. Um, obviously, there are lots and lots of comparisons to the to the Cold War um, and the Soviet versus U.S. partition of various chunks of Africa. Um, in some respects, those are helpful. China has its first overseas military base is in Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, um, and it's two miles away from a U.S. base. There were there were very close to clashes last year. Chinese um, Beijing was accused of shining military-grade lasers into the the eyes of U.S. pilots as they came into land at this base in Djibouti. So this is, this is quite kind of serious stuff. Then on the commercial level, um, America is now looking to invest um, much more readily and, and up to $60 billion into Africa, especially infrastructure development. Um, $60 billion mirrors very, very uh, conveniently with the amount of I money see. that China wants to put into Africa over the next three years. So it's something that both sides are very much aware of, this kind of competitive tension there. Both sides are very aware of it, um, but the Americans are making more noise about it. China is saying that Africa is a big place, um, there's no room, uh, there's no, it's not a sort of a winner-takes-all type environment, in that there are plenty of, there's plenty of scope for American interests to be served, Chinese interests to be served, and African interests to be served. Um, the American approach at the moment seems to be mainly containment policy, rather than development policy. So I think this is, this is where Africa might be slightly more pro-Beijing. But in the East African context in particular, um, if you're going to facilitate trade, you need basic infrastructure, roads and railways. And the two biggest railways that have been built in East Africa and Ethiopia and Kenya recently, um, all financed by Beijing, um, and they are seen as the major um, commercial conduits in and out of the region and also within the region. So it's, it is fair to say that China is financing or has financed something that's proven to be a major regional um, trade facilitation exercise in East Africa. Great. One to watch. Thanks very much, Ed. We'll keep an eye on it. Cheers. Pleasure. Hi, I'm Katrina Hamlin, and today I'm here in Hong Kong with my fellow columnist, Alec McFarlane. Alec, over the last few weeks, we've all been gazing into our crystal balls and desperately trying to understand what lies ahead in 2019. And I know that you've been thinking a lot about what's next for China's startups. Uh, but before we look ahead, let's first look back. Can you tell us how 2018 has been for Chinese startups trying to raise capital? Yeah, it's been a, a blowout year for Chinese startups raising capital. It's the first time that they've raised more money than their Silicon Valley counterparts. Um, that was helped by huge fundraising by and financial, which raised $14 billion. That's Alibaba's financial affiliate. ByteDance raised $3 billion. So there's a lot of multi-billion dollar tickets that were, that were raised this year. Okay, so all of that suggests that cash is abundant. 
But you've been saying that you think next year is going to be a really tough one for Chinese startups trying to raise money. So how do you reconcile those two things? Can, can you explain that? That's right. Uh, cash is abundant. Um, there is a lot of money, but it, it, it's got to be, it's from the likes of SoftBank and it's from the likes of Temasek and it, it's got to be directed towards the best startups, the likes of ByteDance, etc. What the kind of expectation is, is that next year is going to be really difficult for companies that uh, say are in certain sectors where there's not a clear number one, where there's a lot of competition. Um, and that's a result of uh, the public market's been very rough. So of the sort of 25 odd companies that have gone public in Hong Kong and New York this year, the, the, the Chinese technology companies, probably only three of those are above water. Um, the, the last check, it was, uh, it was the video streaming site, so iQiyi, Bilibili, Huya, but all the others have, have really struggled. Then there's regulatory tightening in fintech and gaming and education. There's a lot of like tech education companies that where the stocks have been smashed. So, you know, and there's also a slowdown in domestic consumption. A lot of these tech stocks are consumption focused and also tighter credit access. There's a lot working against the sector right now. Mm. And uh, I understand you're arguing that that's going to lead to a lot of mergers and acquisitions. Who do you see as the likely buyers? That's right, yeah. So I guess the, the expectation is if these companies will struggle to raise money, then they become natural takeover targets. So, th- I mean, the, the, the kind of 800-pound M&A gorilla previously has been Tencent. Their acquisitions are slowing. They just did uh, a big deal, this, this Amaz uh, Anta deal that they were involved in, but that's been uh, a while in the making. But if you look at the, the numbers of deals that Tencent has traditionally done, in the fourth quarter of previous years and, and, and this year, it's, it's, it's remarkably slow. And that's a result of, um, you know, they've been party to this regulatory pressure in, in gaming. They're kind of undergoing a bit of a restructuring at the moment. So Tencent, we can probably expect not to make so many deals next year. Um, Alibaba is, is also quite active, but, um, you know, they're kind of wanting to expand into more into like enterprise software and enterprise clouds. So there's perhaps an expectation that they could do a deal there, but the problem is that there's not that many sizable targets. So, and and also there's a lot of private FC money out there. So Hill House has just raised a huge fund. KKR raised a raised a big fund recently. So private FC could be a big buyer. But I mean, I think the expectation is that a lot of the M and A is is going to be in in certain sectors. And which sectors would they be? So it's going to be overcrowded sectors where there's a lot of competition as i said before so you could probably safely uh single out electric vehicles um advertising technology there's there's like a a big slowdown in in ad spending as a result of the consumption slowdown advertising tends to be the first department to get cut in 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 businesses when that happens um content there's a a lot of competition in content uh, artificial intelligence as well um, and, and niche e-commerce as well. Okay. Um, and within those sectors, who do you think are the most likely sellers? Yeah, so we sort of um, singled out a, a few uh, companies that, that could come up. So in electric vehicles, I mean, if you look at Neo, they've just raised a lot of money in the public market, so you could possibly assume that they might make some acquisitions. Uh, some of the takeover targets in, in that sector could be CHJ Auto, um, in AI, uh, SenseTime would be a, a natural buyer, uh, given that they have raised a lot of money 
from the likes of SoftBank, and they might look at smaller peers like Deep Glint is a, is another Chinese startup, um, and also in content, Qiao uh, Chao, which is a, a kind of a much smaller competitor to Tochao, which is run by ByteDance. Um, that's had, I mean, it only went public this year, but it's had quite a rough time so far, and it's quite difficult to it's quite difficult to kind of imagine how all of these kind of news aggregation apps are going to uh, uh, going to coexist together. Um, and also in niche e-commerce, I mean, like one of the kind of more niche e-commerce companies is BabyTree, which which kind of sells baby goods. It's kind of like an online community, but also sells sort of baby goods as well. So that, you know, also recently went public, but, uh, you know, could come under the, the you know, the, the takeover kind of, you know, the, the eye of uh, companies looking to, looking to buy. And just to put you on the spot, because we really like predictions where we can look back next year and say this worked or it didn't. Uh, which of those deals do you think are most likely to come off in the year ahead? Electric vehicles is is quite a hot sector. There's a, there's a lot of competition, so you know, and and AI as well. So I'd say you know possibly some of the more realistic ones would be, you know, Neo CHJ for example, SenseTime, Deep Glint for instance. Um, I think those would be the, the more likely ones to happen. Some of the the more unlikely ones might be the ones that have just gone public. Yes, they might kind of become you know, the interest of, of acquirers, but that they may not sell. Um, I mean, ad tech, I think advertising is going to have a really tough year next year. There's been some really disappointing debuts uh, by ad tech companies this year. There was Gridsum, there was Aurora Mobile, uh, Mob Vista's just gone public. That's been pretty lackluster as well. So you could probably expect some consolidation in that sector. Well, thank you very much, Alec. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. The looming IPOs of Lyft and Uber may take the wind out of Elon Musk's sales. Anthony, you've been following this. These are totally different business models. What is going on and why are they threats to Tesla? Yeah, it's it's bizarre to think of it in that way in, in many respects, right? You think, okay, Tesla makes cars. It makes electric cars. Uber and Lyft uh, basically came up with an app to let people hail taxis. Right. Uh, and the cars mostly driven are gasoline-powered. So what the hell? Well, here's the thing. Um, there's two things going on. Firstly, you've got this whole changing model for the car industry, which is moving to a greater or lesser extent, and who knows how long it's going to take, move, but moving towards a world of where we have far more electric, far more autonomous cars, and where cars are more often shared than owned. Right? So that's, that fits very much into the model that um, Uber and Lyft have been pushing. Okay. Um, and you may well have Tesla cars among those. And you may well have Lyft and Uber deciding to make cars. Who knows? But the idea is they're all pushing towards uh, having these so-called robo-taxis. Everyone's talking about it. GM says, look, we think we can make 10 times the revenue over the lifetime of a car from operating robo-taxis, they're electric and autonomous, than we can at the moment from the lifetime of a car we sell at the moment, which is about thirty-one dollars to $35,000. The other thing going on is a climate change issue, which is that transportation in general is the largest producer of carbon emissions around the biggest, and therefore the biggest uh, problem for climate change. So changing that is also a big focus. So if you're an investor, you think, how do I marry the two together? Okay, so right now, if you're an investor, really, you only have a few places to put your money, which is Tesla, 
And then I guess if you want to look at GM and Ford and the traditional car makers, possibly. Maybe. But you look at where you know Tesla, of course, has got the huge growth behind it, the huge uh, power of Elon Musk's mission um, and trades that are a whopping multiple. I'm going, to, I'm going to off the back of my head. I think it's 28, 30 times 2020 earnings if it finally gets there. GM and Ford and all the other traditional car makers trade at. You know, less than 10 times earnings because they're seen as being cyclical. They're, they still have big legacy businesses. And there's no way to buy simply, uh, at least for, for, for regular investors, to simply buy the autonomous and electric vehicle divisions. They've got GM, for example, has got investments from Honda and SoftBank. But you and I couldn't go and buy that on the stock market. OK, so basically what you're saying is that, you know, when Lyft goes public and when Uber goes public, this is going to give investors another opportunity to take their money and put it into two companies that are trying to change the way we drive and how yeah. it impacts the environment yeah, exactly. And, the and I think from an environmental, or should I say from a, a sustainability issue, so you think there, people talk about ESG, so environmental, social and governance issues. Um, if you were to look suddenly on the environmental issues, 10 years ago, um, just before it went public, Tesla would have been the one you'd go for. You think, okay, this company is going to change the industry, it's going to force electrification. And to an extent, it's doing that. Probably not as fast as many people would have hoped, but that was the play you would have made 10 years ago if you're betting on the future. Now, if you're betting on the future, um, so the longer term future rather than just you know what happens in the next six months or year or two, I think Lyft and Uber, and especially Lyft, are probably the ones to go for rather than Tesla. Okay, so... Here's the other issue, though, because ESG also, there's another part to it, which is the G part, which yeah. is governance. And these companies are typically really lousy at governance. So, yes. <laughs> you know, Tesla is a kind of a prime example of that. Uber has had a ton of problems. Yeah. I mean, how do you square that circle? Well, I think you're right. And that's why I think Lyft comes out on top on and on basically on on all three. And I, I, you know, okay. I'll, I'll go through governance first. So on governance, um, yes, you saw Travis Kalanick at Uber and Elon Musk still at Tesla thumbing their noses at uh, the rules, at regulators. Elon Musk, for example, still doing it. Um, end of last year, just last week, he announces Larry Ellison is one of two so-called independent people joining the board as mandated by the Securities and Exchange Commission last year. Um, He's a big fan of Elon Musk. They're massive friends. He's always said, oh, I'll back friends? him to the hill. And, you know, and, and Elon Musk uh, and he have spent a lot of time together, a lot of time chatting. And Larry Ellison is just like him. He wants to control everything. He wants to be the one who uh, yeah. pushes things to the side so, if he doesn't like it. So, so not so independent, There's no really. real change there. Yeah. And the governance issues there are pretty big. Okay. Um, I think Uber's getting better under its new CEO. Um, Lyft, though, has taken a very different approach. It's worked, to Uber especially, it's worked with... Um, cities, regulators, whereas Uber very much went in and said, we can do what we want, and then got pushed out. And it's done a very good job of um, making sure that everything works well, there's good accountability, and that the uh, various other factors like social and environmental also come into play. Okay, so basically, it seems like you are putting your chips with Lyft. And how do they do on the other two issues, the climate yeah. and social? Well, I think if we take social next, um, I think that fits in very much with the way that they have dealt with regulators and cities. So it's, it's almost an offshoot 
of the governance, which is you know, we are making sure that we interact, that we play well with other parties, whereas you know, Uber and, and Tesla really haven't done that at all. Tesla's had a couple of alliances with Daimler in the past. It's flo- Musk has floated the idea of maybe cooperating or trying to talk to Daimler maybe about cooperating on an, an electric van. But really, they don't cooperate well, which you know, in, in what's meant to be a sharing economy and a circular economy, you, you kind of expect these players to interact more with each other. Uber's got a few more commitments to other car makers and others out there in the industry. Lyft as well. So I think both of those do better from that perspective in sort of playing well with others in the industry. Lyft, I think, comes out on tops. All right. So what about the environmental stuff? Well, that it gets really interesting, right? So you think it's got to be Tesla. It has electric vehicles. And like I said at the beginning, the other cars don't. But here's where it gets really fun. So first of all, Lyft, Uber hasn't done this, but Lyft has said, look, we're going to uh, make all of our rides carbon neutral. Um, so, okay. They're pumping out a ton of gas out the back, but they're offsetting all the carbon emissions they're coming up with, as of, I think, sort of first half of last year. Okay, let me interrupt you. This is a dumb question, but is Tesla carbon neutral? Um, it's cars are, um, but of course, because they're electric. Well, actually, I say that. They're not necessarily ca- um, um, carbon neutral. No one is completely, because you've got to okay. think the electricity's got to come from so- somewhere. If you're not getting your electricity from solar and maybe wind uh, or um, or hydro, then you're probably not. Um, completely neutral. No. So and so, Lyft, you offset it. so Lyft is basically trying to, to get into that sweet spot. Yeah, so it's saying, look, we know virtually all of our cars are run either as hybrids or as regular gasoline cars, so we're going to offset the carbon that they produce by putting money to one side for whatever. So it's not brilliant, you're still polluting the atmosphere, but if you think, you know, this is a company that I think last year, well no, 2017, its drivers did a total of 50 billion miles. That's five times more than Tesla cars have gone in their entire lifetime. That means in terms of data for um, automation of of vehicles, that's great. It also means the more you move towards electric vehicles, um, and you will do as you get into, um, as you go down the road anyway, but also as you get into autonomous vehicles, you'll have more of them being electric. That's just how they're going to work as robo-taxis. It means that a Lyft and an Uber will have far more ability to um, to not pollute the atmosphere than Tesla's cars will, simply because there's many more of them on the road, regardless of whose cars they are. Okay, that sort of is hurting my brain. So basically <laughs> what you're saying is because Lyft and Uber have more cars on the road, which to me seem bad for the environment, you're saying that really, on the flip side, this is good. The more they go electric, yes. And okay. the more that you have more sustainable, renewable forms of energy powering those, then yes. All right, so <laughs> we'll just leave it there with your idea that Lyft is going to be the big bet in 2019. Let's hope so. Otherwise, I look silly. All right. Thanks, Anthony. Appreciate it. That's our show for this week. We'd like to thank our guests, Liam Proud, Ed Cropley, Katrina Hanlon, and Alec McFarlane. And hats off as usual to our producers, Ross Shoulder, Andrew D'Antonio, and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com, where you can also at the moment find and download our 2019 predictions book, High Anxiety. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.